after my sermon this morning, we'd have 70 or 80 people here tonight. And I didn't really expect that. But I will tell you what I didn't count on is driving off the song leader on top of everything else. Uh, that was a surprise to me. Uh, but at any rate, we're, we're glad that you're here tonight. And I'm glad we have the opportunity to talk about the gospel together this evening. Uh, gospel is a word that is so familiar to us that I wonder if we ever stop to really think about its content. We just use it as a sort of shorthand, and it's in common usage. But because of that, we use it in ways that uh, at times are at best partial reflections of its significance in Scripture. Maybe they're tangential to the main point of the way that it's used. Uh, sometimes they actually don't have anything to do with what we see called the gospel in Scripture. Uh, at worst, it's a, a distortion of it. So let's begin tonight with what the gospel is not. Uh, G.C. Brewer, great preacher of the early 20th century, one-time editor of the Gospel Advocate, G.C. Brewer once told this story where he was holding a meeting and he said he'd preached several sermons about God's love for humanity manifested to us in Christ. And after two or three nights, this fellow came up to him and said, well, you know, all this stuff about God's love, that's all well and good, but when are you going to start preaching the Gospel? And, of course, what he meant were things we've talked about like faith, repentance, baptism, our response to the gospel, properly speaking. Not that that's unimportant, but what he was really interested in was proving that he was right and that his religious neighbors were wrong. Of course, Brewer was already preaching the gospel, or at least things that are in the background of the gospel, foundational to the gospel, the way that we're going to talk about tonight. The gospel is not a set of instructions for us to follow, though it does call forth a human response. The gospel is not a blueprint for how you get to heaven, even though it does carry ramifications for uh, our relationship to God and spending eternity with him. The gospel is not that God loves you and wants to forgive you and wants to wipe away your sins, even though that is part of it. That's not the full story. The gospel is not even the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Now, I want you to notice, Brooks read this uh, a few moments ago, and this is important. But there in 1 Corinthians 15, in our text, uh, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So those facts are critically important. They are at the heart of the gospel, but that's not the whole story. Those three facts in themselves do not uh, define the gospel in total. That's, that's an oversimplification, and it's one that I've made at times myself, but it's really not the full story. And it helps if we remember what the word gospel means. And here is where uh, tonight is one of those happy lessons where we're really sort of building on things we've talked about over months. Some of these terms that we've defined all kind of come to a head, and there's a, 
I think there's a real payoff in studying these terms in depth that maybe we don't often study because then we start to see as we get to the end of this how they all connect together. The word gospel in Greek is euangelion. That means literally good news or glad tidings. Okay, that's right. I saw a furrowed brow and I thought, uh-oh, did I put the wrong slide up there? No, that is correct. It means glad tidings or good news. So fundamentally, what is it? It's news. It's a story. It's about something that happened. In fact, it's about something that is happening now, something that will happen in the future. So when we use the word gospel, we need to make sure, first of all, that we're talking about a story. We're not talking about a set of rules or instructions. We're not even talking about a, a set of facts per se, although the story is rooted in facts, but we're telling a story. Now, this is another thing that we've explained before in this series when we looked at the word proclaim a couple of months ago. I'll mention it again, although I'll mention it more briefly than I did then. In the Roman Empire, the death of an emperor was a time of great insecurity and uncertainty. We're useful to a we're used to a peaceful transition of power. But that sort of thing didn't always happen in the ancient world. And you wonder, well, what's life going to be like for us? Are we going to end up in civil war? Are we going to descend into chaos? And so in the midst of that distress, a herald would go out throughout the empire and he would proclaim good news. We have a new emperor everything's going to be all right. The term for that message that he was bringing was euangelion, good news, gospel. In fact, that word for the herald is the word that we get preacher from. He was preaching the good news. Now, Christianity obviously takes those words and pours very different content into it. But that helps us to understand what we mean when we're talking about the good news. The gospel, the good news, the glad tidings is that we have a new king. We have a new emperor. God is becoming king in Jesus. We've talked about kingdom in this series too. All these concepts coming together. To reiterate that, in the ancient world, kingdom didn't primarily mean the territory on a map the way that we typically use it first and foremost. It didn't even mean the people ruled over primarily, although it could mean that in a secondary sense. But kingdom in biblical thought primarily referred to kingship, that is the authority of the king. So when we see the phrase kingdom of God in scripture, we're talking about God's rule, God's reign. God is taking charge. God is setting things right, just like the prophets predicted that he would. That hope that they had for so long, at last God's doing what he always said he was going to do. He's taking control of things. He's becoming king, and he has done that, and he is doing that now in Jesus. That's the good news. That's the story. That's what the gospel is. And Paul unpacks that more for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, the death 
the burial, the resurrection that we read about a few moments ago, that's at the heart of it. But if you really want to understand the full story, it runs down through at least verse number 28 of 1 Corinthians 15. And we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but I want to unpack it as briefly as I can tonight and give you some more food for thought. You can go home and study this chapter some more on your own and think about it, but we want to summarize it tonight in just uh, seven points, I believe, here briefly. So first of all, first point of the gospel, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We read that a few moments ago. That's the first point. Now, on one level, we all have some understanding of what that means. We've all sinned. We know that the wages of sin is death. We deserve death on account of our sin. But Jesus stepped in and he paid the penalty for us. He made everything right. So if we're Jesus' people, if we're in him, his death has substituted for us. It's balanced the accounts out there. Now, that's all right insofar as it goes. But we still have some loose threads here. And when we understand this in the context of the whole story of the gospel, I think we get a better idea of what's going on against the background of that prophetic hope, against this story of Jesus becoming king. You think about some of the problems here. If the wages of sin is death, we deserve death, and Jesus died for us to pay that penalty, well then, why do Christians die? I mean, that's a given, right? We all die. And sometimes people will say, then, well, Jesus went through that horrific, uh, gruesome death so that we wouldn't have to, to suffer, to be tortured the way that we really deserve because of our sin. But of course, in the early church, some Christians experienced deaths that were equally horrific to his. In fact, he promised that some of them would do that if they followed him. You have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me, he says, and that was not metaphorical in the first century. That was literal. Many Christians quite literally picked up a cross and they died on account of their faith in Jesus. And so the way that we've usually answered this is that Jesus' physical death saves us from spiritual death. But the problem is Scripture doesn't actually anywhere say it that way. The phrase spiritual death isn't actually ever found anywhere in the Bible. And I think it helps if we understand it against the background of this big story. Understand crucifixion. Crucifixion was the punishment the Romans meted out for rebels. That's what they gave you if you were seditious, if you tried to overthrow the government. Now, of course, the Jews in Jesus' day were all looking for just that, right? They expected the Messiah to come and to overthrow the Romans. They were agitating for that. So, in other words, Jesus died the death that they collectively deserved. Think about what Paul even says here. 
He says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He doesn't say Jesus died. He says Christ died. Now, those are the same person, yes. But I think that title helps point us in the right direction. We all know that uh, Jesus' name wasn't Jesus Christ, first name Jesus, last name Christ. Christ is a title. It means the anointed one. That anointing in the Old Testament marked you out as someone who was chosen, commissioned by God. In particular, priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. So Jesus was the one chosen by God to be the high priest over his people. He was the one chosen by God to rule as the rightful king. That means that he would be the one to rule over his people. He would be the one to purify them from their sins. And the only way to rule over them would be to pay the penalty for them that they deserved. That's what a good leader would do. The only way to purify their sins would be to offer himself and to make atonement. You see, we have to understand what Jesus did against the background of that story of Israel and understand that he trusted that God would vindicate him because of his faithfulness. And that's what Paul means when he says here that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Yes, we can point to some text here and there, Isaiah 53, some of the Psalms that talk about how the Messiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, would die. But, but this is more than just a passage here or there, a, a proof text that we pull out of context, one verse that we can point to. This is about the trajectory of the whole story. This is what was being pointed to all along throughout the long history of Israel. This is the climax. God himself provided a lamb, just like he provided that sacrifice with Abraham. God gave himself for his rebellious people just like God was always faithful and stepped in for them in the wilderness. And, of course, as the prophets pointed out, this wouldn't just be for Israel. This would be for everyone in the entire world because everyone was in rebellion to God, not just Israel. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Secondly, Paul says that he was buried. We might not think about that very much. You know, we talk about Jesus' death, we talk about his resurrection, but we just sort of skip over that burial part. But just briefly, a couple of points of significance about that. That points out that Jesus shares in our mortality. He was truly human. He was buried just the way that we are after death. That's what makes him uniquely qualified to be our high priest, isn't it? The way the Hebrews writer says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was just like us. He was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. It also becomes a way for us to symbolically associate with him because in baptism, we're buried in the water the same way that he was buried in the tomb. Paul says that, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Our old sinful life dies with him when we place our faith in him and express it in baptism. And the point of this is, there is a promise that the grave, the tomb that's symbolized there, the tomb that Jesus went into, that no longer has a claim on us. That's not our permanent destination. Our grave 
really is the waters of baptism. We're not going to stay in the ground forever. Just like Christ, we're going to be raised up. Which brings us to that next point. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Several months ago, we spent a good deal of time one evening talking about resurrection. So we've already gone into this in detail. But the upshot of Jesus being raised is that he was raised bodily. He literally, physically came up out of the tomb. This is not just a spiritual resurrection. The apostles didn't just see a ghost. And the point of all of these witnesses here that Paul then lays out, he appeared to Cephas, the 12, 500 at once. Most of those guys are still alive if you want to talk to them. Then to James and all the apostles, and then last of all to me is one untimely born. The point of all this is there are witnesses. He really came up out of the tomb. God raised him from the dead. You can ask people if you don't believe it. When Paul says this is in accordance with the scriptures, again, this all has to do with the big sweep of it, the big trajectory this is the type of thing that we can expect God to do. If you've read the Old Testament, then you know this is in keeping with God's character. God delivers his people from death. God keeps his promises. God doesn't forsake his people. He doesn't abandon those who are faithful to him. He didn't abandon Jesus, and he won't abandon us. Which brings us to the next big point of the gospel. And that is that the dead will be raised. Now that's summarizing what Paul says starting in verse 12. And I'm actually going to read this to you even though it's several verses. But here's the point that he's making. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is of course what he's been talking about, that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised, he made all these appearances. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The next point of the gospel is that the dead will be raised. When we try to teach the gospel to somebody, when we present it, we usually start by telling them, I'm talking about the unchurched here in particular, we usually start by presenting them with a problem that they're blissfully unaware that they have. That is, you're a sinner. You're in sin. And God hates sin, it's an abomination to him, and if you continue in that, you're going to be punished forever. You're going to go to hell, be separated from God. If people haven't been exposed to that, that's pretty abstract. 
it's difficult for them to wrap their heads around it. But when we read what Paul says here and we look at the presentation of the gospel in Scripture, it's actually much more straightforward and simple and presents us with a problem that we all face. Think about this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. What is this chapter all about? It's all about resurrection. And if you look at the presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts, for instance, over and over again, resurrection comes up. Just think about Paul since he's the writer of this. Paul on Mars Hill. Remember the climax of his sermon? He says that God is going to judge all of humanity through the one that he's raised from the dead. And when he gets to that resurrection of the dead, that's when they start laughing at him. What is this nonsense? But remember Paul in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 23, when he's before the Sanhedrin, and he says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, and it's because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm here before you today. He reiterates that a couple of chapters later for Paul, the resurrection from the dead is key. That's key in Acts. That's the key to this chapter. Bodily resurrection is the key. That's the solution. So what's the problem? Well, that's pretty obvious. We die. If resurrection is the answer, the fact that we die is the problem. Sin is the cause of that problem. But the problem is death. That goes all the way back to the garden. Why was humanity cast out of the garden? Lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. Death is the problem. But Jesus' death and resurrection broke that grip that sin and death had on us. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back before we do. But we will not stay dead. One day we will be raised. And this is not our spirits flying away the way we sometimes think of it. This is bodily resurrection out of the grave. That's what Paul talks about in this chapter. That's, for one thing, what the Greek word resurrection means. If it doesn't involve a body, then it's not a resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection is bodily, wasn't it? It wasn't his spirit. His body came up out of the grave. And Paul calls him there the first fruits. That is, we're all going to come in that very same way. Now, you go on further in the chapter, and he says that, uh, paraphrasing, our resurrection bodies will be transformed versions of our current bodies. They'll be glorified in some way. They'll be like Jesus' body. You know, you think about it in those resurrection appearances where he just suddenly comes up out of nowhere. He's able to pass through walls, and now we're getting into some mysterious stuff. I don't know exactly how to explain all that, and we'd get into the realm of speculation here. But the point, the good news is, go back to the gospel, our biggest problem that we all die, that's been solved in Christ. The dead will be raised, and we know that because Christ has been raised. We get to the next point then. Paul says, then, verse 24, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He will deliver the kingdom to the Father. Now, we've already touched on that meaning of kingdom, that this means that God is reigning. He's reigning in Jesus as king. 
we in the church are citizens of that kingdom. We've submitted to King Jesus. We've pledged our allegiance to him in baptism. The church is the present manifestation of that kingdom of God. The good news, the gospel, is that in Jesus, God is reigning. God's taken charge of things just the way the prophets had hoped he would. He's setting things right. He's defeated even death itself. But one day, sin and death will be no more. Jesus is not going to exercise that mediating rule as king. He's going to hand that back over to his father. And that will happen when, the next point, he must reign until all enemies have been put under his feet. He's put all enemies under his feet. A king wouldn't be a very good king if rebels went unpunished forever. A king wouldn't be a very good king if he allowed his people to suffer and to be oppressed forever. A king wouldn't be a very good king if he didn't bring peace and prosperity and harmony. God's no different. The nature of his kingdom is what's on the line here. And so one day, all of the enemies of his kingdom are going to be judged. What are those enemies? Well, the devil and his angels, those are enemies of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Those who do not obey the gospel, that is, those who don't submit to Jesus as king, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, or right here, as it says, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day, God's going to wrap all of this up. He's going to ultimately defeat all of these enemies that have already been defeated in prospect in Christ's death and resurrection. Why doesn't he do it now? What's the only reason he delays? He wants people to repent. His mercy. That's what Peter says. God desires everyone to come to repentance, and so he withholds his judgment, hoping that his love is going to cause others to submit to him. In the interim, we live as his loyal subjects, serving him and anticipating that day when that happens. And on that day, the last point of the gospel, verse 28 when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. God will be all in all. That's the conclusion. That's the whole point of all of this. The end of the gospel, the good news, is that God is going to reign completely, authoritatively, comprehensively, everywhere. Now, we obviously could have gone into a lot more detail on every one of these, but I want to give you some food for thought and to think about these points. That is a powerful story, isn't it? And that is good news. But is that how we normally tell the gospel? What we normally say is something like, the gospel is about Jesus dying for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. That's not just an oversimplification. Oversimplification. Really, in some ways, it's, it's misleading. Some of it is flat out wrong, and it doesn't take into account what we've seen here. 
So if we were to sum up what we've said tonight, the gospel is the good news that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the one the prophets hoped for, he's the one true king of the world. And in his death and in his resurrection, he's defeated sin and death so that all things ultimately will be brought under God's rule. Now that's longer. That won't fit on a bumper sticker. But that's the gospel. That is a powerful story. And that's what we need to be living out ourselves. And that's what we need to be sharing with others. Now, if you're here tonight and you haven't been living that out, you haven't been that loyal subject of King Jesus with that prospect of resurrection ahead of you, you need to make changes tonight so that you'll be ready for the judgment when all enemies will be brought under his feet and God will be all in all. And if that's the case with you tonight, I want to urge you, take this opportunity to make changes while we stand and while we sing. I've wandered in darkness away, Jesus my Savior.